of Zizek and so on. I'm your host, as always, William, joined as always by my co-hosts, Peter and Jake. Uh, today we have Dr. Todd McGowan from the University of Vermont, author of a number of books, including Capitalism and Desire, which is the book that we're discussing today. Todd, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. It's great to, it's great to talk to you guys. It's great to talk to you, Todd. Talk to you too. Good to talk to you again. Uh, it's been a while since that last interview, actually. That was coming up in a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot's changed since then. Uh, but we're going back to um, today. Your 2016 book, Capitalism and Desire. So yeah, we we wanted to ask you just just first off, um, kind of why you wrote the book and what what you saw as your your project with the book. Yeah, I had a I had. You know, I just had a few initial thoughts on on the relationship between capitalism and psychoanalysis, and I felt like no one had yet really, I it, to, to in a satisfactory way to me. Even though there had been a lot of psychoanalytic critiques of capitalism, I didn't feel like anyone had really gotten to what I thought as the core of the psychic, the way that capitalism worked on the psyche, and so that's really what triggered me to write it. And then. I don't know. I just kind of, it, it was one of those books that started out smaller and then got pretty, it got bigger. And, and I guess the, my basic idea was that I felt like there was a way in which the people that claimed capitalism fits human nature were right. Although I, I don't ultimately think they're right, but they got something correct. And I, and so I, I took that as my, as my point of departure. And then I tried to see how capitalism fit into a certain psychic structure of desire or was parasitical to that structure of desire and that really and that was what i tried to follow through in a, in a few different ways in the book mm -hmm. so maybe before we get into that that discussion of desire and and the, the situation your situating of psychoanalysis in relation to capitalism um just first off do you think you would you would sort of change anything about your argument now in 2021 kind of after you know we've experienced coronavirus and and after donald trump and and these these kinds of things that have transpired since you're writing the book. Yeah, I think I would actually. And I, I, I it's funny because I'm writing a somewhat follow up book called Capitalist Unfreedom right now, and so I, I am kind of, in effect, changing it. I, I guess I didn't. I think if if I had to say, I think I didn't acknowledge enough the political instability of the capitalist structure and the way that it tips over or has a tendency to tip over into fascism. And I don't think I explain, I mean, I talk a little bit about that, but I don't think I explained that fully enough. So that's going to get a full chapter in my next, my next book. So um, maybe we could just kind of start off simply with a, maybe a description, a kind of working definition of desire. Yeah, that's a good question. What, yeah. what is desire? That's a, that's a hard question. Todd, what is desire? <laughs> I saw someone, I was at a thing, or I was at a thesis defense, actually, and I asked someone to just define a very simple word, and it ended up being, like, I just said, can you define art or something? And then, you know, it was like, it was a catastrophe for the person. So, no, but but I, I, I guess for me, desire is the relationship that the subject takes up to objects in the world in a way that 
the subject wants, uh, I don't want to define the word with the word, uh, seeks to invest itself in those objects. So the, I, I think it's something about the relationship that the subject has to the object with a, I don't know, it's hard to say, because I think it, on the one hand, the, it's, it's about an attempt to acquire the object. But I think, and this is, I think, gets to the crux of the issue for capitalism. It's also about not obtaining the object. So I think desire wants to sustain a kind of attention of the subject relative to the object. And that's why I think it's both hard to define. And that's why I think capitalism can capitalize on it. Cause it, right. I think that there's, we have a, a that unconsciously we want to sustain that not having to the object, but consciously that doesn't make any sense that our conscious wishes want to obtain objects. We want to I think that, I guess for me, desire, unconscious desire wants to sustain its failure to obtain an object and conscious wishes want to succeed in obtaining objects. So I think, I guess for me, there's a opposition between the unconscious desire and, and conscious wish. So I th first and foremost, desire is unconscious for me. Mm -hmm. And it's about, so it's about perhaps a kind of relation. Um, could, we, could we maybe also kind of tease out the distinction between desire and enjoyment? Sure. So, so I think it's possible to enjoy your desire, but I think that desire is about desire is a is is a yearning for something, right? Okay. Like it's a it's a feeling of one's lack, and I think enjoyment is, in a certain way, a second degree movement relative to desire. So you can enjoy your desire, or you can be horrified by your desire, but the enjoyment I think always operates in that. In that, in a, in a degree removed from desire. So I think enjoyment is, I guess, to me, that desire is less an an emotion than enjoyment is. And I, the other thing I would say is enjoyment. I think is conscious. I think we are unconscious of the ways that we, what produces enjoyment for us. But I think enjoyment is is not unconscious in the way that desire mm -hmm. is. So that's important. I think an important distinction. I think just to situate the. It's a sort of general philosophical question, what is desire? But but for the purpose of this conversation, I think it's important maybe to see what's homologous between capitalism and psychoanalysis in um, their nuanced understanding and then utilization of desire, at least in terms of capitalism. Is there something about the emergence of of capitalism and psychoanalysis that repositions us to think desire differently? than simply a sort of this conscious yearning versus being able to think of desire in terms of the unconscious. Yeah, I think that's a good point that there is something about capitalist modernity that gives birth to the psychoanalytic expl exploration of unconscious desire, even though, so I think that even though I don't think capitalism consciously or capitalists consciously try to capitalize on unconscious desire, I think they all the time are. And I think what capitalism does is it plays on that unconscious desire for not obtaining the object to deliver a satisfaction to, to subjects or an enjoyment to subjects that depends on their not obtaining the object that they, they, they actually desire. So I think that's the, to me, that's what capitalism introduces this. It introduces this real evident constant failure to give the subject what it wants and then making the subject aware that it doesn't have what it wants that's the i mean isn't that what capitalism constantly is telling us you don't you don't yet have what you want 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, to me, the, but, but that's what's satisfying about it. That, that drive that never gives us what we're actually mm-hmm. seeking. So in considering capitalism, I, I, I think that we tend to either use it as a catch-all term for whatever we think is wrong with society, or we just plain don't think about it. Yeah. Uh, so is desire a sort of key to unlocking your conceptualization of capitalism? And, you know, does it work as a kind of leaping off point for for a definition of capitalism even? Sure. I think capitalism is the, I'm not going to define it with desire. I think it's the dominance of the commodity form. That's the first thing I would say. I think that's what capitalism is. I, I think you're right okay. that oftentimes we just use it as a catch-all for, oh, it's just the evils of capitalism and we don't, mm-hmm. it's not clear. But I think for me, it's the dominance of the commodity form that that gets imprinted on everything in the society. And then, but I would say the relation of that to desire is the commodity form is the promise of infinite accumulation or or, or always more accumulation. And so that's Mm -hmm. the, that's the way I think capitalism relates to desire that it tells desire, you can always have something more. Whereas I think desire is always seeking to not, it's, it's, it's sort of caught between this seeking more and, 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 and breaking itself, like not actually finding satisfaction and not getting more. So I think mm-hmm. that, the, and capitalism, I think, inserts itself right in that way that desire functions. So that you have the promise of more that drives you on, but then there's a satisfaction or an enjoyment in the failure to give you that more. And, and that's the way that it constantly feeds itself. Right. And uh, an- another way that we typically think of capitalism is that Capitalism is is kind of defined by contemporary culture, and that capitalism is culture to some extent. But you make the interesting claim that capitalism isn't culture, and you point to uh, a, a point that that Zizek also makes that capitalism isn't culture in the way that it that it fixes itself and accommodates itself to to every particular culture. Right. I think it's a crucial point. Right. That there's no like, no culture invents capitalism, and capitalism doesn't it doesn't care about the culture that it, it, is, it is inserted into. I think that's absolutely crucial to understand it. And I, I think that gets us out of this way of thinking, like it's this, it's somehow European thing that's imposed on others. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, it, I think capitalism is itself uh, a structure that, that just, it has no, it, I, I mean, certainly it has a culture in which it's born, but I think the, the right. radical, adaptability of it to every single culture, I think shows that it does, it's really blind to culture. Right. What can psychoanalysis tell us or how can it help us analyze capitalism? Because you, you say in your book that the space for psychoanalysis of capitalism exists within what you call the incompletion of the capitalist system itself. Right. Um, which seems to be kind of like a, a, a psychological definition of capitalism. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I would say that, but yeah, I think that that, I mean, I guess that's right. That, I'll, that's, I'll redact the last part of that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm a little Nothing reluctant. Nothing you can say is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I just would say that like the, the I think that the, I think that the, the staying power, and I, this is one of the ideas of my book, that the staying power of capitalism is intricately linked to the psychic appeal that it has. So that's, right. that's what I would say, that it has this, without this psychic appeal, I don't think anyone would be invested in it. And I think that's what psychoanalysis has to bring to the table. Like it shows that, you know, I, I have a lot of Marxist friends that are like, look, it's just about, it's just about material exploitation. And I, I feel like saying, well, okay, but there's a way in which 
the people that are being exploited are investing themselves in the very thing that exploits them. And I think that's what psychoanalysis does the best job of explaining. I think it also explains why the people that are on top are actually the most dissatisfied. It's one of the very, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I don't know. I never had any, I don't think there's any psychoanalysis of like the Greek ruling class or, or anything, but, but I, 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 I think that it's an unusual thing that the ruling class would be the most dissatisfied, isn't it? I mean, right, that's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's mind boggling, but it's, it's absolutely true in capitalism. So I, I think that mm -hmm. that's, I think that's one that that's, that psychoanalysis can help us to explain that and then to see how that indicates something problematic about it, I think. So I think there is space for a, you know, a psychoanalytic politics that's, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do in the book that's critical of, of capitalism. Yeah, and you and you mentioned at the at the opening of the book that although Freud um, didn't think that psychoanalysis could be kind of applied generally to society, um, obviously you you believe that it can. Um, I'm wondering how we might think of the kind of uh, psychoanalytical concepts being applied onto society, um, and what comes to mind is you know the kind of Jungian notion of the collective unconscious, and I and I'm, and I'm I'm sure that's not what you're saying, but how can we differentiate that notion? Yeah, I just think that that that's an in, that idea. I can see why Jung came up with that, but I think that Freud's whole point is that the unconscious is not located within an individual, so it wouldn't make any sense to talk about a collective unconscious. That implies right. that it's individualized, and that the in some way the unconscious is always out there in the, the in the social interaction. You know, Freud, whenever he analyze someone's unconscious it was it was not you didn't you didn't reflect deep on what's within your psychology which is why i resisted that use of that term but but but, but instead huh. you looked at what the way in which the psyche manifested itself in its actions and so you know that 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 in that sense the, the unconscious is always out there you know in structure play. like a language yeah exactly right <laughs> like it's out there yeah you know in in play in the in the in the social order within within every, in, in all the interactions. So I don't think it's ever individual. So that's why I think Freud should have said, like you could psychoanalyze the collective because the, like if you can psychoanalyze the individual, you can psychoanalyze the collective because in a certain sense, there's no, you know, they're always intertwined with each other. So I don't, I don't think, I, I guess I, you know, it's interesting because he, he says that and then he does, he writes books like Civilization and its Discontents, which are, mm, yeah. you, you have yeah. to say, are, are psychoanalyses of the collective. So I don't know. I think he, he kind of plays fast and loose to that, but he does say it. Well, I feel like, I feel like to psychoanalyze society is, has a lot to do with perhaps ideological critique or critique of ideology Yeah. insofar as, you know, a conversation about desire, I think, from the Lacanian perspective, has to do with the language of the big other. And uh, and then I think this plays into this tension between understanding the unconscious as something individualized and then potentially, you know, actualized or understood through the psychoanalytic process versus a kind of understanding that our, our desire is always already out there. Um, and I think on some levels, that that desire is the product of a particular ideology and its relationship to the individual. So like, is there, exactly. is there any way in which the process of psychoanalyzing society or in, in terms of your book, 
applying psychoanalysis to a critique of capitalism involves less, you know, an understanding of like the actual process of, of analyst and analysm and more a process of an ideological critique. Oh, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Like, I don't think I, you know, I never, I was only a patient. I was never an analyst. So I, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't pretend to be an analyst in that sense, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's the way in which psychoanalysis is mobilized toward ideology critique. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, just, I think why Freud would had to be wrong about this idea that you couldn't analyze the society was because there's all, and I think this is what you're getting at with your question about ideology. There's always within, and this is true, I think, within any subject. I mean, Freud's point was there's no, we don't have a normal subject that we could compare the society to. So there's no way to, mm. you know, there's no standard to judge by. But in a certain sense, I think you don't judge, even when you're analyzing a subject, you don't judge the subject by some external other idea of normality. It's the, it's the split within the subject itself. And so that same split exists within the society that right. there is a, and this is, I think the idea of ideology, that there's a truth of the society and then there's its ideological presentation of itself. And you can measure the one by the other. And I think that's in a sense what psychoanalysis brings to the table in a certain way. Right. And I think, so that to me is something that can be done and it's something that psychoanalysts do do with the subject as an individual and with the society as a, as a whole. Right. Yeah. I think um, in, in thinking about this, this, like what you're saying about uh, the, the kind of relevance of the, of the critique of, of psychoanalysis in thinking about capitalism. Um, I think part of, part of your, of your, of your argument in the book is kind of coming to terms with the ways in which we are capitalist subjects. Right. Um, and I think to, to, uh, to leftists in general, this might this might come off as a bit too like, kind of like fraternizing with the enemy somehow, or or something that people don't want to admit to themselves, you know. But you right. know, Zizek calls this eating from the trash can. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wonder I wonder if you could say anything about that. The kind of like that that capitalism does to some extent set the terms for how we conceptualize capitalism, and even the the origins of capitalism function as a kind of like break with the order before, even a kind of critique of the order before um so yeah i, I don't want to i don't want to ramble on too much here no that's a good question i, I mean i think that that it is true look i i think that there, you always have to find the seeds of what's new within what's what already exists so i i guess i mean that's what i would say about that critique and i think that's true that, that, that capitalism gives us a lot of opportunities to see that. So I, I, I guess, and, and, it, and it also is true that cap. Back up thing. Okay. I'm recording now as well. So, okay. Good stuff. All right. Very good. Pretend okay, so like it never happened. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a there's an interesting part where moving on from the kind of initial uh, brush with Freud that you that you bring up in the book, you talk about um, different iterations of Marx's critique. You uh, you say that in the beginning, uh, Marx is critiquing accumulation, and then the uh, starting in the 20th century with the Frankfurt School, etc. There and with Foucault, they're talking about repression. Um, maybe we, can we, can we talk about different periods of capitalist critique and why maybe now a, a new critique is called for as opposed to them? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's true that without the development of the 
the change in capitalism in the 20th century, this turn to the emphasis on consumption and, and trying to enhance and, and really exacerbate the, the world of consumption. I, I think that the, a book like mine wouldn't have been possible because I think the psychic dimension of capitalism really comes out when there's an emphasis on consumption versus an emphasis on production. Like a book uh -huh. like Max Weber's, right? Like it, you couldn't imagine that being written today, right? Like the, the notion of a Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism like that, you wouldn't say, I think today that that's the spirit of capitalism. So I think it is true that there's been a massive shift in the very structure of capitalist society that makes certain things become evident. I guess what I would say is that we know the beginning by the end, right? We know right. we can see what was always at work by the way it functions now, I do, guess I would say that. Do yeah. you think that the repressive approach to analyzing, say, capitalist ideology is, is dated at this point then? I just think, it, I'm, I guess I want to even go so far as to say it was never right. You know, oh, okay. like I think that, I think that, you know, Foucault is very famous for his critique of the repressive hypothesis. And I think that, that, that repression and, you know, the biggest Marxist exponent of this repressive critique is, is Herbert Marcuse. And I, I think I like Marcuse a lot, but I just think it's not, I don't think repression is the key to cap the way capitalist ideology functions. I just, I don't, I just, I don't like, I think that the, that it actually does satisfy desire like i think that's th mm. that's just true of capitalism so it's not so then i think repression is just the wrong way to think of it well yeah and your your book seems to 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 sort of forward the idea that that the important move in freud is also the important move for a critique of capitalism is a movement from repression to repetition right and right. and i think and freud obviously even for him uh, repetition was still kind of mysterious, right? The, the sort of the mechanism of rep of repetition was almost what birthed the kind of modern, even Lacanian understanding of of desire and enjoyment that I think allows us to furnish this kind of critique of capitalism, which is like it's not necessarily just about um, hidden desires right. and about appealing to, and that capitalism sort of best appeals to those desires that are hidden to us but maintained and facilitated by the by the you know economic structure that is or that capitalism just represses desires as right. i think Marcuse right. is, is arguing right yeah that's what he's saying right and so i did yeah i think the point about the turn in freud is really vital i think that it, so that in 1920 beyond the pleasure principle like that to me is the fundamental shift and i don't think there's been a critique, a psychoanalytic critique of capitalism that has fully taken that shift into account. And, and that's the entirety of what I'm thinking about. Like I'm thinking about it, mm -hmm. as you got, as you mentioned, like just solely in terms of, of repetition and, and drive, even though I don't mention drive so much in the book, I, 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 that really is at the source of what I'm, what I'm thinking about in terms of how capitalism, what keeps it going and also what might be the, the, the limit points of it. Well, right. I, just on that term, if we can, if we can kind of point, uh, pin it for a second, the drive is a term that I think because of issues of translation with Freud has been made quite, you know, still to this day ambiguous. Is yeah. there a way that your critique of capitalism um, now might better, you know, um, excavate the term drive, uh, you know, better show, you know, sort of show us really how drive plays into capitalism. And it's not about instinct. It's, it's more about loss, 
Right. I think that's the key mm -hmm. thing, right? Like it's about loss. And I, I think I have a chapter in the book on sacrifice and the way capitalism utilizes sacrifice. And I think that that, I think Freud comes to this idea and he, as, as you kind of hinted at, he's not really sure of it himself. And his, I think his idea is though, that there's an enjoyment in loss and thus in self-sabotage that generates loss. And but I think the point is that that has to remain unconscious. And so capitalism allows that to happen in a way that we remain unconscious of it. So I think that's, to me, that's the big trick of, of the capitalist system is that it allows us to, ex to enjoy this repetition of loss without being, while at the same time thinking that we're following our self-interest and actually winning and accumulating things. So I think, I mean, I think that's the, that's really the genius of the capitalist system that it can that it can satisfy this one thing the drive while giving us this conscious matrix that is going in the exact opposite direction so it's really right i think it, I, you know to me that's why it seems so hard to think of a outside or a way beyond capitalism and i think people don't haven't articulated fully why that is but i think it's because of that thing that it's sad it's so deeply satisfying in a way that we're totally unaware of mm -hmm. right well the, the and the and the thrust of of a of a critique based on on repression seems to still be about positive contents right right and right. whereas you know exactly. it seems like your your critique hinges on the, the the idea that that what is constitutive about desire is is but it's negative you know content and and i feel like when i was reading your book i i came up with the you know the lacanian aphorism there is no capitalist relation it makes me think about how like sexual liberation and and the idea of repression uh, of 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 sexual instinct back in the you know the 60s and 70s which you talk about actually at length in the book it's the idea that you know we could only ever critique talking about positive contents and 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 so we miss the negative um, you know, origin of sex. And in this way, if we're talking about capitalism, if we focus on only the positive contents of desire, we miss the constitutive negative element of it, right? That capitalism mm -hmm. actually mobilizes much more successfully than, you know, our hidden desires. Per totally se. agree. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think that you, you could put it another way, you could say that, 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 that the, the Marxist Marcuse critique is focused on on the content of the desire, not the form that it takes, right? Like, I right. Think, right. Oh, yeah. Right. That seems to me a big, and, and I wanted to just pay attention to the form of desire, but I think you're right. Like it's a negative, the desire has a negative content really. And that's the, that's the crucial thing. And not to think like, oh, it's just some, and this is of course what misleads Freud, I think early in his, his career is that he thinks it's some, there's some particular object that's repressed. And that's why desire can't be made conscious right but it's really actually the very structure of desire that is so antithetical to consciousness and to the whole entire structure of our conscious that it has to be unconscious so i think that's the to me that's the real shift in freud and again i don't think for you know i don't think freud himself really understood the radicality of that shift what, um in terms of like desire as a drive or as being concerned with the drive, it, it seems though that um, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily in some way predate capitalism, of course. Um, of course. And uh, so I guess the kind of the way the, the space for capitalism is, is kind of opened up before 
the, the economic system. Can we think of it like that? Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that's, that's absolutely right. That, that there's a way in which the, the desire that, that our, our, the structure of the subject's desire itself had to be there to make the space, just as you said, mm-hmm. for the capitalist system to emerge. Like if there wasn't already that structure there, then you couldn't have capitalism. It's interesting that the, the most, and I, I think this, this person said it in good faith, it wasn't a mean critique, but the, the most vehement critique I got of the book was by someone who said, look, you're analyzing the structure of desire that comes from capitalism, mm-hmm. right? So, so you're, and so you're, what you're saying is fine about that, but it has nothing to do with the structure of the subject's desire outside of the capitalist world. And I, I guess what I would say is I like your point because there has to be that structure in order for capitalism to ever emerge in the first place. Yeah, like isn't that, that the right. point? <laughs> yeah. A position that was being critical of me, I should have said to her, I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to say this, but <laughs> I should have said to her, look, you can't then explain how capitalism could have attracted the psyche in this way if the psyche wasn't already structured in a way that was amenable to the capitalist relation, right? You can't just, like, think about it. Like, if I said to you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to convince you to start eating you know, like grass, like I couldn't, no matter what I said, you would just say like, that's stupid. I'm not going to start eating grass. It doesn't taste good. It's not nutritious. I'm not going to eat it. (laughs) And so no matter what ideology I bombarded you with, you're not, because there's no space psychically for you to start doing that. Right. So I think that's, would be the point that there has to be a psychic opening for capitalism to take hold. Otherwise it just wouldn't take hold. Right. Is this the, is this, does this pertain to your discussion about the, the, the division between the signifier and the signified? The kind of like the lack that's opened up in language is, there, is then kind of like um, incorporated into the, into the capitalist structure? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like, like if there wasn't that split and thus lack within the signifying structure, there would be no space for the capitalist system to emerge. I, I absolutely right. think that's true. Right. That there has to be the space. And I think this is true for anything, right? Like anything that emerges, there has to be a, a space for it to be possible. Even, even ideological things, even things that, are, that control us. So, uh, so then we can perhaps then capitalism is a particular iteration or response to desire. Like how, what we think of other previous economic systems like feudalism, for instance, just a different, a kind of different economy of desire. Right. I think that's true. Right, like there's that there are that every socioeconomic system is a different response, Mm -hmm. I would say, to the structure of desire. And I think you know it's interesting that I don't think anyone has really thought about different past economic socioeconomic systems in that way. But I I think that that's the way that we should try to think about them. Yeah, but I don't I don't know anybody doing psychoanalytic historiography, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, right. Happening. It seems as though. Uh, also, like with the, with this particular count of desire, you're you're placing maybe a, a kind of different emphasis or inflection away from maybe a kind of ideological critique, or do you understand this as a kind of form of ideological critique? I think it's still a kind of ideological critique, although I can see why you said that because there is a way in which I want to get away from a notion. And Slavoj does this too, a notion of ideology as manipulation, right? Like, uh-huh, yeah, like mm-hmm. ideology has to. I think, I do think ideology is necessary. I don't think it's possible to imagine a post-ideological social order, but I do think the way that we 
I, I, don't, I do think that the way we relate to ideology is not necessarily, that that's what can change over time. And so, but I do think it's, I don't think ideology is manipulation. I think ideology is the, is the narrative that explains our loss. So, so our, our, this, our status is lacking. So it gives us some idea. So in American ideology, for instance, the notion of merit, like I, I'm lacking because I'm not meritorious enough, mm-hmm. right? So there's some, and so I think that that's not necessarily manipulation. That's a way of making sense of our structural position to us and I, 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 illusory way of making sense of it, but nonetheless, a way of making sense of it. And sorry, go ahead, Jake. No, that's interesting. You said, you said ideology is, is, as a narrativizing of, as a narrative, really. Yeah. I, when I, when I think of, of ideology, I think of, um, well, I think of it as necessary as something that's constitutive of the ways in which we even desire. And it's, exactly. it's got this kind of by almost a kind of um, negative feedback between desire and ideology that, that maintains um, the other, right? This sort of mutual constitutive relationship. And, and so, so like, I feel like if that's the understanding of a relationship between ideology and desire, is, is it not is it i feel i have a problem with the term narrative basically um, oh really yeah why um well only because i feel like which you know chicken or the egg which is narrativizing which um ideology seemingly being the um just the, a, a particular way of coordinating something that is always already a product of desire and so really the content of ideology is not as important as the form which i think is derived from the constitutive negative element of desire that's based on, I think even, I, th- I think I got cut out, but you guys are talking about Tassasur, that's based on our entrance into the symbolic order. So right. to me, I don't understand necessarily ideology as, as, as narrative, but more like the constitutive framework or structuring of our relationship between desire and the inability to, you know, essentially um, fulfill, be satisfied. Um, yeah, I, I guess, but I, I, I guess, so I guess I, what I would say, I, I see why you're saying that. Yeah, does it, yeah, I guess yeah. narrative, just basically the word narrative for me, it's like, can that be said differently or does it, you know? Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm not totally attached to that. I just, <laughs> yeah, I, the way that I am. <laughs> I mean, my, my idea is that it's a, that ideology is a, I, if I could say, I'll say it this way, that I think it's a justification for lack and that but what I would say is always narrative is fantasy because fantasy right. narrativizes a path out of lack for us. And I think that is absolutely crucial. But I think ideology, for, I, so I, I think it's important to keep that distinction between what's ideological and what's phantasmatic, even though, the, of course, the fantasy can be itself an ideological fantasy. But I think there has to be that distinction because right. the ideology is what justifies our lacking position. And then the, the fantasy charts us a path out of that. Like it, it can be a fantasy, like, of course, for traditional religion, like it's a fantasy of some kind of eternal reward, right? And that's, and that's a path out of, but the eternal reward is a path out of lack. And, 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 but ideology, I don't think does that. I think ideology is an attempt to reconcile us. The, the, to, to our lack. Now, to so would, lack, you, right. would you then call capitalism strictly an ideology. Well, kind of, but right there. So there is a capitalist ideology that says, I, right. I, I'm in my position is lacking because I'm for whatever reason, right? Like I, I haven't 
I haven't worked hard enough or I haven't saved enough or whatever. All those are aspects of capitalist ideology. But I think the problem, I think capitalism is also has one foot in fantasy as well, because it wouldn't function if it didn't also promise this deliverance from lack. And I think that one of the ideas in the book, I maybe drum this into the ground, is that, that every commodity has, I said something like even buying a hammer at the tool store at, at Home Depot, even that is like the soulmate, right? Like the soulmate huh. is a commodity that promises us total deliverance. It's like eternal life or whatever. And the, the hammer is, there's something of that in every commodity that we buy. I think that that's, that, that, that that's what capitalism does. It, it inserts this infinite into the commodity and, mm. and, and, and that's the phantasmatic dimension. So I think it has to have both. It has to be both ide ideological and phantasmatic in order to work. If, if you guys don't mind uh, Peter, well, I want to ask uh, on the heels of that, of what you just said, where, where do you find um, a discussion of love in, I mean, we're obviously, we're talking about desire and we're talking about desire in, in and under capitalism and that, that kind of commodity form, I think, you know, I think it's, it's probably, I mean, at least it's not, it's certainly not nuanced to think of relations, romantic relationships and relationships of friendship under capitalism as, you know, um, reflective of the general commodity form. But right. um, how is it that, that our love for one another can avoid the trappings of, of commodity form under capitalism, or is it, is it simply impossible? I think that the, the key is the, 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 the way in which, like if you're accumulating something as a commodity, its response back to you never matters, right? And I think in love, it's precisely that in love, the, the thing that you get back is this desire of the other subject. And that's the thing that's utterly discombobulated. Frustrating, yeah, yeah. Frustrating, like no matter how long you've been in a relationship, I would say, like you still get this desire of the other that's constantly like not, it doesn't ever right. get, it doesn't ever respond in the way that you want it to respond. And that's, and, and the, the key is, of course, that's why you're in love with the person, right? Like you're, you're not in love because they, and this is, I think Lacan gets at this with his, there is no sexual relation and there's no complementarity between, in a, in a relationship. Like the whole point is, it's the failure of complementarity that makes the, that makes the love exist and so i think that that's the and but the problem is that that's a hard thing to it's a hard medicine to swallow right like to say <laughs> like oh okay wait a minute so it's when he or she doesn't do what i want them to do that that's the thing that causes me to love them and the answer is yes and that's just crushing mm. because that means that there there's always going to be fights in like you know you know so so if i always like to think about that like if, if if the christian heaven is a heaven of love like it's it's a terrible it's a place filled with constant strife, <laughs> right you know? like right that's, which is fine okay like if that's going to be your eternity that seems like a better version than the, the peace and harmony version well, and like i'm oh sorry pardon no, me go ahead, go ahead. well just unlike a commodity you know the the hysterical way of why am i what i am for you that a lover makes you sort of have you know you have to kind of continually ask this question is because you yourself are the object cause of desire and object of desire simultaneously for someone else, as opposed to your relationship to a commodity, which is like, I, you know, it promises satisfaction and then kind of propels you into, you know, the notion of, well, the next thing will provide me, you know, 
more, you know, better and more infinite satisfaction, but your lover just continues to show up and, and right. makes you ask, you know, why am I what I am for you? What, right. what is, it's something in you that is much more than you, right? Right. Um, I think your, your point there, which you kind of skipped over, I think is a great point though, that, that you are both the object that causes the desire and the object of desire. And it's in a certain sense, that contradiction that makes that makes the tension that create is generative of a lot of the tension in the relationship, right? Like you mm -hmm. can't, like the person can't, I don't know if you know this movie by David Lynch uh, called Lost Highway. Oh yeah. There's a, so the, 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 the main character played Fred Madison played by Bill Pullman. You see him like tearing up. It's very brief. You see it very briefly, but he's like tearing apart the body of his wife after he's killed her. And, I always think that like what he's trying to find is I want to separate the object of desire from the object oh, wow. that's caused by desire. Right. And so I think that's, I think that, that in love, you can't so, I mean, he, he's a psychotic murderer, but I think in love, you can't <laughs> separate those two. Wow. Yeah. While we're on the subject of film very briefly, um, I don't know if you're aware, you, you must know Adam Curtis, Todd. Uh, do I know? I, yeah, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He just came out with a, with a new movie, but it, it's, it's, it's on the mind. It's in the zeitgeist right now. Okay. And he spends a lot of time in those movies kind of like tracing through, tracing or, or discerning a narrative of the way that desire has been um, kind of forced on us in a capitalist mode. The capitalist mode of desire has been, has been imposed upon us. And we are, we are kind of living out this this fantasy, living in this fantasy world, as he always likes to say. Um, but it seems like, I, it seems like you would really disagree with that kind of rendering of, of, of the, the, the history of the political subjectivity in the 20th century. Yeah, I think so. Like, I, and I, you know, it's interesting because I think that's another critique of what I have written is that, that I'm, I, 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 I do claim that capitalism really is satisfying, right? Like, the, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's a real, I don't know. I, I, I think that's an important thing to avow, like the way in which it really, it does offer a kind of satisfaction that, and, and, and it's not, and you know, the Frankfurt school, for instance, was so obsessed with this idea that we've been, our desire has been misdirected and taken over and, and held hostage. And I just don't, I don't necessarily think so. Like, I don't think like if people stop listening to like, if they, like, I think for someone like Adorno, the fact that people listen to Britney Spears rather than Mozart is like, is, is a terrible thing. And I, I'm like, I just don't, I don't get that upset about that. Like, I think, <laughs> like Britney Spears is, could be fine, right? Like it's, 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 it's not, it's the way we relate to the thing, not the con, and this comes back to the form content question. It's not the content of what we're, what we're consuming, right? It's, it's like, it's the, it's the form in which we do the consuming or do the producing either. So right. it seems like there's crucially uh, some, something about clearly about the way that the subject stands in the relation to their desire under capitalism and uh, like the way out of that. Like, you, like you're, you're, you're kind of at the end of the book, you're talking about uh, enjoyment and kind of satisfaction, but it's not, it's not saying like, oh, we have everything that we need, but, but rather placing the satisfaction of enjoyment in, in that in the in what you don't have is that is that what you're, what you're yeah yeah I, I i yeah that's exactly right like i wrote a book called enjoying what we don't have and that's right. really like in a certain sense i just keep writing that same book over and over again but that's <laughs> that's kind of the thesis at the end of capitalism and desire for sure and i think my my claim would be that capitalism blinds us to that 
or, or makes us unable to enjoy what we don't have. Although I should also say that, that I, I was able to write the book under capitalism, right? So, yeah, so, right. so in a certain sense, capitalism did make that possibility become visible. And I don't think anyone had written that idea before, come up with that idea. I'm mean, not to say that I genius invented it, but I do think it just became, became open and became evident within the capitalist structure. So, so that, so I think that that's one of those ways in which, you know, it, we were talking earlier about the, the, the promise of capitalist modernity. And I think maybe that's another one of those things where it opens up a thing that it itself cuts off, but it, it, it shows you a certain possibility. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, no, um, it, it feels like a big part of the book and the thrust of the book is that the, um, and this is, I think you, you, you're referencing Marx to say that the liberation from capitalism is really only possible through it. And um, I think in Hegel and a Wired Brain, which we obviously wanted to bring up uh, just before I maybe finish this point, do you think Zizek misspelt your name in that intentionally? Uh, Did you I see that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tony McGowan, you know, for, oh, Tony McGowan. I have to tell you, like he has misspelled. He he often, I don't know, it hasn't happened lately, but he'll he'll spell my first name with D, and I said, "Jeez, <laughs> yeah, that's a little too obvious." Like it's a, like tot in, in in German means death, and so that's really not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so with, with the A added, it was a little bit better. Than that. But, um, he even he sent that. I had the um, the proof of it. He sent it to me before, and and my friend Russ Vrilia said, said wrote him back and said, "Look, you got Todd's name spelled wrong. You got to change it." And he said, "Okay, I'll change it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's intentional. I just think it's like what it, it's clearly some unconscious thing he has with my my name, which I, I don't like my name either. So I, I'm, I'm fine when it's misspelled. Actually. You should resign. Yeah. Resign to it. Right. Yeah. I don't really care. Well, just, well, just, I mean, I about a funny thing about that. Yeah. Like, I've gotten a couple of subsequent to that book coming out, a couple of uh, invitations or whatever. And they've actually had my name spelled with the A in it. And so I'm like, well, you must've gotten that from, from Slavoj's book. book. So. Well, just in that book, I mean, that the, not to, I don't want to go over necessarily the themes of that book, but it, but it involves, you know, um, what is paradigmatic, I think, about, like, where capitalism is today, insofar as the, the, it, the teleology is, in, is proposed that it's in singularity, and um, that there's going to be a way of sort of overcoming um, our desire as it's rendered in capitalism in, through this notion of a kind of connectivity, a universal connectivity through, you know, uh, mediated by technology, but right. ultimately, what what remains for Zizek is something about the subject that can't be reduced, you know, uh, in this mediation, and that for him takes on different terms like the unconscious, but also I think it has a lot to do with desire. And so, just thinking about your book um, and a sort of beyond capitalism that's found within it, um, he, he, you know, Zizek says that there's it, it would be wrong of us to sort of to try and reconfigure our libidinal, you know, economy per se. And that the only solution is to openly admit, this, and now I'm quoting him, openly admit and assume sacrifice and renunciation as such with no teleological justification in future satisfactions. So when I was thinking about your book I, I, and, and reading it, I was thinking like, what is it about your form of, of capitalist critique that might propose a different kind of like idea of time? And I don't, you know, obviously time is a big capital T word, but 
um like is the is like essentially like what is what is the political project that can emerge out of your of your your kind of critique and can it happen is it always already happening now is it something that needs to you know that will happen later um I, I, I sometimes think about, about time and desire. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering if you can, you know, in any way sort of respond to that, that yeah, question. I think, I, I would, I wonder if those are different questions. But yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll answer them separately just because to me they're different. Like I think, so I think time, it's so interesting that time for 20th century thinkers was the thing that they were trying to get thought to approximate. Like they thought we were, so I'm thinking of Heidegger and Bergson primarily, but the, so and and then subsequently Derrida, the whole that whole Deleuze, that whole tradition. So there's a there's a way in which that for for Heidegger, signification strips us away, get, loses us, loses our our and and the the results of signification, like the emergence of the big other, what Heidegger calls das Mann or the they. Yes, it gets us out of touch with our original temporality. And the, so the attempt was always, and Bergson thinks something differently, but it's kind of the same thing. Um, he thinks that uh, the spa our spatialization, we spatialize, spatialize time. And I, I think basically Heidegger thinks that too. And, and so the, the, the idea is how can we within thought, which is necessarily structural and, and, and use, utilizing the signifier, how can we get to, to our original temporality? And I think my sense is that what, I think that's this is the through through line from Hegel to Freud and psychoanalysis is, is the, the wager is almost the opposite that that time is some time happens externally and we're these atemporal subjects stuck into time and I think so I think it's almost and for Heidegger time is utterly he follows Kant in this we're time we're we're the Time is us, like we are temporal, we are temporality. And so I think, I, I think that what psychoanalysis brings is like, okay, of course we age and, and we die and we're in time in that way, but that we, always, we always relate to what happens in time and it, it's an ex, as an external thing. And this is why when we think back about something that's happened long ago, if it's important to us, it doesn't even, it doesn't feel like it was long ago, right? It feels like, like if I think about a past trauma, it can be just as traumatic as it was at the time that I experienced it, right? And, that, and that's, I think, what psychoanalysis really brings to the table in terms of our understanding of time. And I, I think there's a way I, I could relate Hegel to that, but I'm not going to take a while. So, so that's what I would say about time, that I think that there, and, and that then allows us to think about the future in the same way, right? So the future is not going to bring a solution to my current structural problem, right? Like that problem is, right. is, is structural and it's not, there's no possible future arrangement that's gonna fix it. Now, this is, this is kind of, sorry, yeah, just ahead. to interject very briefly, this is kind of what you're saying about the promise at work in capitalism, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. So I think even though Heidegger would hate, he hates total anti-capitalist, I still think because he's, so concerned with our temporality, there's a way in which you can see his thought as as linked to that capitalist, the idea of the promise, right? So anyway, so so then I think that that how do you think a politics with that as the basis? Because you can't, it has to be a politics that doesn't have a promise of a future satisfaction that's greater than this one. I, and then, you know, my friend Anna Cornblue at the end of her book, which I really like called The Order of Form, she says, we can imagine a future that's 
doesn't give any more satisfaction, but that's more just. And I, I thought that's an interesting way to kind of get around this problem, but I, I, I'm not sure that that succeeds, right? Because, because what would be the impulse to get us to the more just world if it's not more enjoyment, right? And so I, I guess, I guess the, and, and this is something Lacan says in seminar 11, and I think it's been like, it's a guiding thread for me is that he said, the only thing that justifies the psychoanalytic intervention is that we can make the paths to enjoyment shorter. Not that we can, you know, make more enjoyment, not that we can cut out the obstacle. It's just that we can, that he said at a certain level, a subject gives itself too much trouble for its enjoyment. So I guess that, I, I mean, it's hard to put that into a political program, but I guess something like not giving ourselves too much trouble for our enjoyment would be the political program. Now, what that entails, I guess, I, I, what I always say is, I think there has to be a way in which we're, we're not buying into the capitalist promise in our attempt to oppose capitalism. So, and I think my sense is that that's been a problem within Marxism uh, historically. A shift in terms of uh, perhaps like who is the revolutionary subjects? Like what motivates them? Where are they right now, et cetera? Right, right, right. I think, look, I, my sense would be everyone is the revolutionary subject. All yeah. you need is this little shift, right, to away from the promise. And then you're ready to fight against this capitalist structure because it's, 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 it gets you involved in this thing that you don't really need to get involved in. I think that's the whole point, right, that capitalism gets us on this effort to accumulate when what we're enjoying has nothing to do with all the things that we've accumulated. So I think there's a kind of minimalist uh, politics to what I'm suggesting. In, term, in terms of like it being about the subject and the, relate, the way they relate to their kind of immediate uh, satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, like, and how they relate to, their, the, to the, what they're doing. Right? I feel like, like, in, they, some, yeah. I feel like yeah. in some sense that's what uh, Sartre is talking about in the um, uh, Search for a Method. I think yeah, that, I, I really like that parallel. Yeah, yeah. What, what does he talk about there, Pete? Uh, well, he, he's talking about how like, the, the Marxist analysis has to also accommodate the, uh, the subject's existential like, life world, like how hmm. it needs to be included into the, the way they directly experience their lives. Yeah, I hmm. think it's interesting to think about Sartre's, like he's such an anti-psychoanalytic thinker in, in mm -hmm. some sense, but I think... In another way, I think that there's a, I, I would argue that psychoanalysis provides a way to really enrich an existentialist project that sees, you know, like lack as fundamental and understands why it's necessarily fundamental and then tries to, can you imagine structuring society around that rather than around this fantasy of escaping from it, right? Mm -hmm. well, Staying with staying with Sartre for a moment, I, do, doesn't Sartre himself speak about lack all the time, right? Like yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. so I mean, how do you think he gets it wrong in that sense? No, he doesn't get it wrong in that sense. It's just that okay. he thinks, I he you know he he doesn't ever think about unconscious desire like that. Just is not right a factor for him, right? And he he also doesn't. And I think it's interesting because he doesn't have a theory of enjoyment. I don't think so. He doesn't. I think that these. I would just, there are not that many points of corrective I would add to him because I think Sartre's pretty great, but I think these are key things that need to be maybe injected into his, his thinking.
there seems something interesting about the way that like Sarge's legacy is interacted with that this is a kind of naive question. I'm genuinely confused what the what the issue that people have with Sartre is. Yeah, I think it's that I yeah, I that's a hard question for me yeah. to answer, really. But I, I think it's that he did look, I think this is, comes from at Slavoj too. Like he that Sartre wasn't comfortably in any camp, right? Like he uh-huh. was he was never fully a Marxist. He never joined the party. And yet he was never, he was always kind of straggling within this, in the kind of no person zone. You know, he never was fully Heideggerian. He was, ne- you know, he yeah. didn't fit in. And I think that's, I think people have a problem with figures like that, right? Uh-huh. That, that don't, and even, I think his version of existentialism, it became trendy for a while, but I think it, it, it itself was so much about not, having a club to join into that it that it, it couldn't really itself become a club very successfully i had well, one yeah. more i had one more question um and it's a bit of a leading one but but your book that's that you're working on um is it is the working title capitalist unfreedom it is it is it is yeah. okay i feel like maybe you know without have you know without uh spoiling the book itself for future readers like is 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 realizing unfreedom in under capitalism a, a better or at least a step in terms of critique towards realizing a kind of freedom and unfreedom you know speaking of Sartre but like what about that book is going to build on your, your thoughts on desire under capitalism and what allows it to sort of you know go beyond that book, you know the book that we're talking about today yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. maybe it's just repeating the same thing I don't know. <laughs> right, uh, but, I know. right but but I think what I'm trying to do so a couple things like I, I think that I'm trying to conceive of a link freedom to the idea of sublimation and then think that the way in which capitalism through the commodity actually channels our sublimating efforts right. into the commodity. Yeah. And so, so what's I think interesting about sublimation, and this is why I think it gives us freedom, and I link this to Hegelian Kantian idea of freedom is that it, it it provides a fundamental limit. Like it says, this is what I'm interested in and nothing else. So like the collector sublimates, right? And they, they're interested in the collection, but they want to, they're, they're interested only in that thing and not in other things, right? So, so that idea of sublimation is fundamentally limiting. And then when it gets channeled into the commodity, it gets, the idea is it gets pushed into this realm of, of more and accumulation, right? So then, yeah. so it's, so I see that as a, so that's the way in which I think capitalism betrays if our freedom is located in our capacity for sublimation and making something count more than other things, then if we, when we're, when we're, when we're, when that gets channeled into the commodity, then that gets tied to accumulation and then it gets, it's, it's, it's ability to free us gets lost. And so that's the, that's the main, that's the main idea. And then I, I link the, and then I, I try to think about the way in which um, that to understand the commodity in terms and, and, and capitalism's creation of value through its focus on what doesn't, isn't useful. And so I, I really play on the way in which uh, the destruction of use is, is central to the creation of value in in capitalism so that's so that's what i'm trying to think about in that in that book so i think it's i think it's like i don't think i talk that much about freedom in that sense in the capitalism and desire book so i think it's i hope it's different enough i feel like what it makes me think of just just to finish is is that like the book 
this book, Capitalism and Desire, and then your, perhaps your next book is about thinking about the limits of desire and then so the limits of freedom. And it's that capitalism makes contingent these limits, whereas your critique makes them necessary. Yeah, yeah. And, and that like the contingency of, of, our, of the limits of desire is something that is perpetuated by capitalism and, and then you know, promotes accumulation and essentially this perpetual chase after the object. Um, cause of desire and through various objects of desire, whereas the necessity of the limit is where new critique, you know, is born. And, yeah. and I feel like that plays into freedom too, right? You know, yeah, accepting. It's, great, nah, it's such a great point. I really love the way you put that because I think it's interesting that, that on the, that we, I think typically too, the left has seen contingency as the political way to oppose capitalism's illusion of necessity but i'm kind of seeing it i'm seeing it in the way you just said right like that that actually capitalism wants us to say limits are contingent and we have to recognize them as necessary and i think that also goes against the marxist critique of of capitalism as well which also wants to see that limits as just contingent and, and thus you know surpassable yeah I did want to touch on one more thing very briefly. <laughs> we, we whack in the pinata while it's here, you know? <laughs> it comes at the very end of your book. I thought it was a, a very, just a fantastic phrasing. You said, it is through the banality of the everyday, not in the promised satisfaction of the future, that one discovers the sublime. Um, so I, I, d does, this, does this kind of play into what you were just saying about, about yeah. limits? Yeah, absolutely, right? Like the... Like in, in, it's because it's in the reduction and the limits to what I constitute my everyday with that we find that we create the thing that's valuable that allows us to enjoy our existence. So I think that that, mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what I would say. I mean, I love that idea that, that through, I mean, obviously I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I love it too. But, yeah, uh, but that, 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 um, that, that it's through the, through the, through the limitation and I like that idea that Jake said about the necessary, the necessity of the limit, right? That, that, that in a certain sense, that's what I want to, that's my real, that's my, the focus that goes from one book to the other. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thanks guys. It was a total pleasure. I really, it's, really had a great time. It's such a treat. Thank you, Todd. Okay. Thanks Paul, Todd. All right. Thank take you. care guys. You too. Bye. 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 Thank you.